I'm interested in revelation, in what will be revealed through the poem, through me, not what I have to reveal, but what it has to reveal. Today, a conversation with verse with the Irish poet and New Yorker poetry editor Paul Muldoon. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, written for other media from radio to song, and plays in a rock band, Rogue Oliphant. He visited us for a magical day at the On Being studios on Loring Park in Minneapolis, including a dinner, salon, and reading from his work, like this excerpt from his poem called Pelt. They piled it on all day till I gave way to a contentment I'd not felt in years. Not since that winter I'd worn the world against my skin. Worn it fur side in. I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. Paul Muldoon holds the Howard G.B. Clark Chair in the Humanities at Princeton University. He's been with The New Yorker since 2007, and he is the author of 12 major collections of poetry, including Horse Latitudes, Hay, and his latest collection, 1,000 Things Worth Knowing. So you were born in County Armagh in Northern Ireland in a Catholic family in the Moy. The Moy was the name of the village? The Moy is the name of the village. Mm-hmm. It's the, the village nearby. It's actually on the border of counties Armagh and Tyrone. So it's about halfway oh, across okay. Northern Ireland. Yeah. And uh, we were actually in County Armagh, but the Moy itself is in County Tyrone substantially. Okay. And then there's a little village across from it, a hamlet really, called Charlemont. Mm-hmm. So a small place. And... To be born in that part of the world also was to be born in a place that loved poetry and kind of lived and breathed story. And I wonder if you think in terms of the spiritual background of your life, expansively defined, um, would you think about poetry and story as a piece of that as well? Well, I I would say so, yes. I mean, I wouldn't have been conscious of that as a child. But of course... um, we were brought up uh, in a culture where, for example, of an evening, a knock might come to the door and a neighbor would be there and he would be hoping to come in and he was welcomed in and he'd have a cup of tea at least. And um, then he, uh, he, predominantly he, but a few women came around too, would perhaps sing a song or recite a, a ballad or a poem. So that was certainly, we were conscious of the larger literary tradition. I mean, the tradition in its widest sense, yeah. including the oral tradition. So that certainly was part of the back of our mind too, or perhaps even the front of our mind. Mm-hmm. But way up front, I think, was the religious aspect. I mean, if one had said spirituality, that's what we would have been talking about, was organized religion. Right and uh, Catholicism in particular. You noted in another interview that the Celts had a god of eloquence, which I loved. Ogmios. I'm very um, interested in this question of what poetry gives voice to in us, what it works in human beings. And I've discussed this with poets along the way and I, and, and musicians. Um, how would you start to talk about what poetry 
as a form of expression and also its forms of language distinctively draws out? Well, it is a form of expression, of course. Mm. Um, It is an expression of something within as well as something without. And perhaps indeed the point at which the two combine. It's very difficult to find a decent metaphor for this. One of the defining characteristics of a metaphor, of course, is that it breaks down fairly soon. Mm -hmm. You know, only up to a point. You mean any metaphor. That's right, Mm -hmm. any metaphor. Mm -hmm. Only up to a point is my love like a red, red rose. Right. Only up to a point. Um, So to find a decent way of, of thinking about it, you know, the expression, I, let's think of what I would say to my students. I mean, the expression of, it's not as if one is setting out to express oneself. And I say that because ideally one has no sense of what is going to come out. As a poet, you mean? As a poet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not as if one has a point of view. I think, ideally, which is not to say, of course, that there are poems that don't present points of view, not to say that one has an idea, which is, of course, not to say that poems don't express ideas. But that's not where we begin. We begin, again, from ignorance, from perhaps the germ of something, from a hunch, from a notion that if we take a couple of elements in the world and set them down, something might, something interesting might happen. And gradually, as the poem, in this case, comes into being, what it's trying to do in the world gradually becomes clear. Hmm. And it's only, in fact, as one comes out the other end of it, I think, ideally, that one realizes what it is. Now, of course, there are other theories of art. I mean, Bertolt Brecht, for example, would say, well, actually, we have to begin with the idea we're going to make a political point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I absolutely understand that. It's not the kind of art making I'm interested in. Mm. Um, I'm interested in um, revelation, and mm. what will be revealed through the poem through me, not what I have to reveal, but what it has to reveal, mm. if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. So I have no, no revelations at all. I know nothing. I'm not to be trusted on anything. <laughs> but the poem may know something and may be trusted, actually, on what it has to uh, express in the world. In my practice, others may think about it differently. And as much as you are... It sounds like uh, perhaps surprised by you. you there's an, a process of discovery for you of what the poem is. Totally. Right? There's got to be a process mm-hmm. of discovery. And then uh, are you sometimes surprised by that work the poem does in the world, which you also could not have intended, or how it lands in other people? Well, yes. I mean, part of the job, of course, is to try to figure out what its impact will be. Mm. As you're writing. As one's writing. All right. Because if you think about it, again, it's hard to find a decent analogy for this. But let's just take it that there are two people involved in the writing of the poem. Mm. There's the writer who is appealing to her unconscious, to her profound sense of unknowing. And then there's the reader 
who, as the poem comes into being, as I say, as one word puts itself after another, is trying to figure out um, what the impact of those words in that order might be from a position of knowing, right? Mm. And it's the negotiation between these two, the unknowing and the knowing, that... um, crudely put, would represent the positions of the writer and the reader. So the first reader of the poem is the writer herself. Mm -hmm. In a strange way, the poem is indeed only finished, only completely, becomes completely what it might be when that other person comes to it. Mm. You know, one thing you said, um, I mean, you've done many different kinds of writing, in your life, um, I have tried. Right, and, when you, and you've written for radio, for example, and you've, you've written for television, and you've written for music. Um, one thing you've said about poetry that is distinct from other kinds of writing mm-hmm. that intrigues me is that poetry doesn't build to the big idea like many other kinds of writing, um, but it starts there. That the poem starts where many uh, kinds of writing would be. Winding up. I did say something like that. Mm. Of course, one has to. I have to think of all the things <laughs> one has said, including all the daft things one has said. I'm sure that um, I think I, I recognise what you're alluding to. I um, think that may have been that. You, there's a lovely interview in the Paris Review, Review. I think it may have been that interview. Uh-huh. Um, well, I mean, I can just yeah, I can just ask you like how how would you talk about how po- writing a poem is distinct from all those other kinds of writing? What, what? Well, actually, I think it's often most useful not to think of it as being all that distinct. Mm-hmm. I think one of the problems with the general perception of poetry is that we think it's special. Mm. And if anything, I think we'd be better served if we thought it was much more like prose fiction, much more like uh, theatre criticism or film criticism than occupying this kind of special realm Poetry land, you know? Yeah. Poetryville, where all bets are off, anything can happen. And again, I used to say to my students, and still do, if they listen to me, which is unlikely, of course, that I expect the poem to be at least as interesting as the film review in the next column. Mm-hmm. I expect it to, or at least in general, there's no particular reason why it wouldn't have a beginning, middle, and an end, generally in that order, though, of course, there are times when that's not what it needs, but uh, and that it makes sense, unless, for some reason, it doesn't quite, you know? And that uh, as much thought has gone into it as has gone into a um, film review, or the leader in the local newspaper, right. the op-ed piece, and that it actually, and one comes out the other end of it, thinking, "Huh, that was interesting. I'm glad I was in there. I actually learned something in there." You know, not necessarily about whether or not the economy is healthy, but perhaps something about the just uh, a new a way of looking at something that one hasn't quite seen before a way of looking at a wheelbarrow, a way of looking at a plum in an icebox, some modest little shift in the world, but a shift, Mm. a revelation. And basically, if there isn't some kind of revelation, it hasn't been worth one's while to be in there.
at least they weren't speaking French when my father sat with his brothers and sisters, two of each, on a ramshackle bench at the end of a lane marked by two white stones and made mouth music as they waited, chilled to the bone, Falderal, Falderal, Falderal Dio, for the bus meant to bring their parents back from town. It came and went, nothing. One sister was weighed down by the youngest child, a grocery bag from a town more distant still in troth. What started as a cough, Falderal, Falderal, Falderal Dio, would briefly push him forward to some minor renown, then shove him back, oddly summary, down along the trench to that far-flung realm where at least they weren't speaking French. That's Paul Muldoon reading an excerpt from his poem, At Least They Weren't Speaking French, at the On Being Studios on Loring Park. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I think also what you're alluding to in a general way also is um, we're not sure what the place of poetry is in a culture like this. I mean, it's not the culture you grew up in where it was lived and breathed and not, as you say, not the domain of poetry world, but of ordinary people in ordinary life. Um, you know, you tell a story somewhere about... Um, you know, being with your son, your children, you know, mm-hmm. that children are natural poets, that somehow that this is with us. I mean, you told a story about your son driving along on the highway and saying those lights are like tadpoles, right? And we, we've, we've all had that experience. Um, I think I've given one interview too many. I really do. I, <laughs> well, vaguely, I, I vaguely remember well, that. Well, this is one way. But, oh, but the, <laughs> yeah. the, all right, I'll stop quoting no, no, you. No, no, not at all. But, no, no, I but think this idea that somehow, how does it get lost? I mean, what's, your, what's your analysis of that? Um, I, I'm afraid that uh, too often it gets educated out of us. I mean, that is something we've heard once or twice, maybe more than once or twice. But I really believe this, that the natural capacity that an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old has for coming up with, unselfconsciously coming up with novel ways of seeing the world. I mean, ways that actually inform us about mm-hmm. how the world is. They're fanciful in some sense, but they're actually instructive, I think. And one of the reasons why the child, and I, you know, we've heard this from William Wordsworth, the child is father to the man, but I think in some sense she is because she is capable of that unprogrammed, um, unthinking way of seeing the world. No preconceptions, no misconceptions. And there comes a point, actually, 
where I think we begin to educate that out of them. You know, at some point we say, oh, that's lovely, that's very nice. But at some point we probably say to them, well, you know, actually, you know, your tadpole analogy doesn't really hold up. You know, get serious, get real, grow up. And, um, you know, that uh, capacity to be innocent and open, for want of better terms, um, ignorant again. To see unexpected likenesses, metaphors. That's right. Mm-hmm. And we continue to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we tend, you know, whether or not we write poetry, we continue to see these unexpected connections. And that, of course, it's odd that it doesn't have more more of a place in the world because that idea of the connection is quite central, of course, to who we are and how we operate. We love to make connections. And um, it's what makes us feel good in the world. It's what sends our endorphins buzzing around or whatever they do, you know? Yeah, yeah. So somehow uh, in the poetry business, let's say, other things begin to push in. One of them is that poetry of a certain kind is introduced into the head. What passes for poetry uh, tends to end up as merely Dr. Seuss. Mm. Now, I love Mm. Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. I think he's fabulous. Mm -hmm. I think he's fabulous. If you ask an eight-year-old to write a poem, she'll come up with the tadpoles. You ask a 15-year-old to write a poem, and it's sort of sub- Sub, sub, Seuss. Interesting. And something has happened. And I think a large part of this falls on the shoulders of educators in the broadest sense, the parents, the teachers. This is poetry. And of course it's one form of poetry. Mm-hmm. But my own view is that um, children should be, insofar as we have any <laughs> control over them at all, and of course as parents we know we have less and less, uh, as it should be. But in some sense, we I think we should be introducing them to Robert Frost and Lord Byron and Tennyson and Marianne Moore and Elizabeth Bishop and Emily Dickinson and John Donne. You know, we should be giving them not, quote unquote, children's poetry, yeah. but poetry. You know, I think it's much more effective to give them Mozart and... Uh, and handle and whoever. I mean, is that grown-up music, children's music? It's music. Yeah. Give yeah. them music. And um, I do think that, uh, you know, we are what we eat. And if you are given a completely Seussian diet, as I say, I love Seuss. But if that's all you're eating, mm-hmm. there are going to be problems. Mm-hmm. And that compounds the problem. There are other aspects, uh, again, Uh, You know, poetry is uh, perhaps often overly taught. Mm. When the teacher comes round to teaching poetry, I think in many schools, not all, um, she herself is actually quite nervous about poetry. Mm. She has to show the child the intricacies of the poem, the great unknown territory of the poem that without the teacher... Uh, the child would get lost and wouldn't last a day, you know, would die of exposure in the poem, right? Right. Right? Without this fantastically prepared guide through Mm -hmm. the poem. 
And, um, you know, I think as teachers, we all run the risk of wanting to show how smart we are. And it's part of what happens then is that the child is convinced that a poem is never about what it seems to be about. It's mm. always about something else. Mm. It's always encoded in some Inexplicable. way. Inexplicable. Inexplicable. Mm-hmm. It's never about what it is, what it seems to be about. And it's beyond us. It's beyond mm-hmm. us. And the fact of the matter is, it is not beyond us. It's right there. And what what has tended to happen, and uh, one of the reasons why there may be a little difficulty with the reading of poetry in most cultures, actually, not only this, is that we have neglected to uh, accept that to listen to music, you have to learn to listen to music. Now, we, we learn to listen to music by having the radio on 24 hours a day, by, by being mm-hmm. bombarded by it in the mall, everywhere. So we're actually quite au fait with mm. how music works. Right. We are absolutely au fait with how film works. When we go to see the new, whatever, blockbuster, we um, are very well equipped to watch it. And we know what it's alluding to, if anything. We know its structure. We recognize a flashback. We're able to come out of it and say, you know, along with uh, Rotten Tomatoes, I give that 80. Along with Siskel and Ebert, it's two thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah. Or two thumbs down. With poetry, we have not had that exposure. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. And, and and you're the poetry editor of the New Yorker. So I'm told. Which so which which infiltrates poetry uh, in along with other kinds of writing and thinking and reviewing. As you said, it's next to the film review. Um, it is, and mm-hmm. that's one of the great things about that magazine. Yes, uh, it's, it's it's very a, rare in in America. It's a fabulous magazine in many ways, including that way. And we have a difficulty though. We have a difficulty, and the difficulty is that we're able to carry only 100 poems a year. What uh, does able mean? Because of room constraints? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, there are two poems a week in the magazine, usually. Um, let's say 100 a year. And we know all too well that there are more than a hundred good poems been written in this mm. country. Mm. Many more. Mm. Many, many more. So what I think um, uh, would be fabulous would be if the New York Times, the, the San Francisco Chronicle, the LA Times, whatever, the, the Boston Globe, if these newspapers were able, if they could just have a po- at least a poem, if not a every day, every couple of days, once a week, it would actually, they wouldn't have to pay anything for it. Mm. They'd need to pay somebody to keep an eye on it, I suppose. But it would be to get the sense that poetry is not special. Right. That it's there as a, just another feature and factor and fact of mm-hmm. uh, life. Amidst all of our other ways of Amidst communicating, of- writing... Or being. Or being. Mm. Um, It would be lovely to think that people might be discussing the poem in the paper the way they'd be discussing the the Mets score. Yeah. You know? (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, you know, having said that, I really don't want to be part of too many more discussions of, you know, the, 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 the demise of poetry, the mm-hmm. poor state that mm-hmm. poetry is in. I mean, frankly, there are a lot of people writing poetry. There aren't enough reading it. And... Uh, but it's not necessarily a an art form that is a death's door. I, I, ju- I just I don't, don't think subscribe so either. to it. My experience, and when we put poetry on the air in, in this radio show, mm-hmm. is that people respond to it like they were starved for it all along, and they didn't know it. it it's not even just—it's not a discovery that they understand it wasn't even optional. Um, well, I think that's why it's—it's it's really a responsibility of the. You know, the media outlets, as we call them, I guess, seems like a crass term, but it's our responsibility to to um, give people that opportunity. You know, I want to tell you, um, I'm one of these people who cannot abandon the printed page, right? Mm-hmm. I, I do still do all my reading in books. Same here. Um, uh, however, and even my magazines, but I stumbled upon the fact that when you read The New Yorker on the iPad, you can listen to the poet reading the poem, which is brilliant. So it's one of the few places I'm now going, you know, to this mobile device for the reading because it's it's both of those layers of the of the poem, which is so well, wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's I'm delighted you enjoy that. And that indeed is the ideal way to experience a poem Mm -hmm. is a combination of being able to read it and being able to hear it. Mm. Because there's always something of interest in how, in particular, the person through whom it came into the world delivers it into the world. There's something revelatory again Mm -hmm. about having that experience. And, uh, you know, we're our first experience of poetry was, if we were lucky, was an auditory one. And while not all poems absolutely function uh, as oral experiences, of course they don't. There are many that operate more for the eye. Um, most of them do, and most, mostly there's something rewarding to be had from that experience, I think. One good turn deserves a bird in the hand. A bird in the hand is better than no bread. To have your cake is to pay Paul. Make hay while you can still hit the nail on the head. For want of a nail, the sky might fall. People in glass houses can't see the wood for the new broom. Rome wasn't built between two stools. Empty vessels wait for no man. A hair of the dog is a friend indeed. There's no fool like the fool who shot his bolt. There's no smoke after the horse is gone. Thank you. (laughs) 
find Paul Muldoon reading this poem, Symposium, and others at onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation with verse with the poet Paul Muldoon. He's the poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine and a professor at Princeton University. He spent a day of conversation, food, and public reading at our studios on Loring Park in Minneapolis. I lived for a while in, in divided Berlin in the 1980s when the wall divided the city and experienced a place where poets were heroes, Right. I mean, people didn't have a lot of what makes life meaningful or comfortable handed to them, but they did carve out lives of dignity and beauty and integrity. And in those spheres, poets were such important people. Poetry had a, you know, it was cherished and, and it was also dangerous. And these poets sometimes got expelled. And I know that, you know, I, I was last year at a gathering where there were poets from places like Sierra Leone. I mean, it's true across human history, that in dark times, often, you know, that, that this need in us for poetry, I think, rises to the surface, becomes more evident. Now, you are often called a poet of the troubles, that you came out of, of Northern Ireland's uh, trauma. I just, I wonder how um, this might speak to where this country is right mm-hmm. now in this early 21st century with so many large, open questions. Um, I'm glad you, you think so. Yeah. Not everybody thinks that. Oh, well. Well, a lot of people think the deal is done here, you know, that America has a, a arrived at the condition of being America. Yeah, well, we're human beings, so the deal is never done, right? <laughs> well, I think so. <laughs> yeah. But other people, for example, on the poetry front, I think a lot of people continue to think, well, poetry actually happens in one of these more interesting places. Right. Well, so my question to you is, uh, and you know, you're working with students, right? You're working with young people also here. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about the role of poetry in hard times and in moments of um, upheaval? Because this is a moment of upheaval, whether we are reckoning with it or not. Do you mean in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S., it's true. Well, yes. I mean, as I say, for people to recognize that it is, I think, is probably, I think a lot of people are reluctant. Mm-hmm. Despite all the evidence, despite what they see on the TV news, if they watch the TV news. And there are many reasons why they could do well not to watch the TV news mm-hmm. because so much of it is bunkum. So and little of it is. Demoralizing and So little of it is news. Mm-hmm. But one would like to think that poetry and the other arts would help us to some extent uh, make sense of these things. And I'm sure there is actually a certain amount of writing now that you know represents, uh, for example, the black experience in this country in a way that is, is very refreshing and is you know very welcome. Um, will that uh, stop policemen you know shooting black men at will? it seems, in some cases. I don't know. One of the interesting things about poetry and poets is that we are often called upon to do the work, put crudely, that should be done by other agencies. Hmm. Yeah. You know, we don't 
necessarily, generally at least, ask painters or philosophers or composers or many other forms of artiste to help us solve our societal problems. <laughs> and it's partly because, of course, we think there's, a, and understandably so, there's, that poets are indeed special cases <laughs> and that ha have some kind of uh, extraordinary insight into how things work, which in ways they do. But I don't know if we should be expected to come in and um, solve society's problems. Mm -hmm. It's part of a, a, an idea that's been presented by poets themselves, of course, as well as readers, mm -hmm. that somehow poetry may uh, be a form of salve, of salvation, mm -hmm. that uh, it's a form of sucker, S-U-C-C-O-U-R, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. sucker, um, in the world. Yes, but I wonder if that moment of desperation where literalistic, can-do, pragmatic Americans, you know, come into that moment of acknowledging one's helplessness and ignorance. I'd love and, to see And it. turn to poetry as one of the resources. As one of the resources. As one of the resources for courage and bringing some beauty and perhaps some playfulness and um, some reflection of the unconscious. I think that's right. It would be, it would be great uh, if that were to happen. There's a little bit of a problem, though, which is I th in the popular imagination, poetry is all salve. It's all beauty, mm. things of beauty, beauty in the world. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, for those who hold that position, uh, if one actually looks at poetry, one realizes that more often than not, it's... Um, a representation of ugliness, of the difficulties of the world. Complexity. The complexity right. mm -hmm. of the world. And I think is necessarily so, mm -hmm. because that unfortunately is the larger part of what we meet. And again, I think it's too much for us to go to poetry or any of the other art forms expecting uh, them to to bring us merely beauty. Right, or and, to be merely uplifting. And to be merely uplifting, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I read somewhere recently about, I think it was Bruce Springsteen who was talking about how many of, I hope I'm not misquoting him, I think it was himself talking about how many of his songs are constructed and they begin with an, an, some sense of desolation mm. and then some, some sense of uplift or whatever. Um, but desolation is um, part of the deal. Yeah, I think that's a good example too, because I don't think this, whatever the uplift is, doesn't negate the desolation. Right, that's it's still right. there. That's right. And I think you know, as human beings, we have to live uh, amidst this terrific morass, mess of information and these various. Um, upheavals in the world, mm -hmm. the various assaults on us, physical, intellectual, that push in uh, on our lives um, to find ways of, um, a phrase 
are you sometimes being equal to that, mm. you know, mm. being equal to that pressure? It's very difficult, but we have to do it. In Armagh or Tyrone, I fell between two stones. In Armagh or Tyrone, on a morning in June, I fell between two stones. In Armagh or Tyrone, on a morning in June in 1951, I fell between two stones. In Armagh or Tyrone, on a morning in June in 1951, I fell between two stones that raised me as their own. Paul Muldoon with an excerpt from his poem, The Outlier. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Song and music are important to you. You have a rock band, is that right? Well, I do try to write lyrics, um, and I've tried to write lyrics for for various bands. Um, Bands, you know, come and go, Mm. and uh, I just, I love music. You know, I was like like many of a certain age, uh, sixty four now. Um, when I heard when I'm sixty four from the Beatles, um, it's I suppose you know like everyone else, perhaps themselves, <laughs> they were thinking you know that's a long way down the road. Yeah. But the truth is that has been part of our part of our being actually, and in fact, rock and roll is as much. I would imagine, I, I would be surprised if it weren't the case, if it's not as much a an inspiration to my writing mm. life as, you know, Theodore Retke or any of the other writers whose names begin with R, <laughs> Robert <laughs> Frost. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're almost indivisible from it. It's, it would be very hard to distinguish oneself from uh, from all those noises with that have been in on, you know that have been in the air for so long mm-hmm. you know um, I think you make um, such an important point that you know that poetry and song are so much to the extent that there's a border between them it's very porous um, and in fact that, here I am quoting you at yourself again. That's but all right. I Go ahead. So, you know, you you talked somewhere about um, the fact that there's kind of a modern disdain of poetry that rhymes. It's not necessarily in fashion and or goes out of fashion again and again, but that in fact in song what we have is rhyming poetry, and that that continually keeps humanity kind of in touch with with that, whether the official world of poetry is doing it or not. It's so interesting. It's a, it's a way to think about how poetry is, in fact, woven into our lives in ways that we don't imagine. Of course imagine. it is. And um, poetry comes in all sorts of forms, all kinds of forms, all shapes, all manner of ways. And I think 
if we take into account um, all the manifestations of poetry in the world, including some in prose fiction, by the way, mm-hmm. and non-fiction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, in uh, the ways in which it goes back to some of its earliest sources, the riddle, the prayer, the charm, the the incantation, which, uh, of course, were all uh, forms of poetry in some Mm-hmm. In some in, in societies, and continue to be, I think, in many. Um, if one accepts, you know, in one's uh, expansiveness, <laughs> um, you know, rock and roll and um, mm-hmm. rap and yeah. country music. Um, this is wonderful. I want to just uh, ask a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. It's. Um, Do you think you have stuff? I have absolutely, no idea. What, you absolutely. Know, if you have stuff, you might like. I so no much. Idea. I wanted to. Um, I, uh, you can see I always have far too many notes. No, no, not at all. That's good. Um, I reached out to a friend who is in Northern Ireland, who actually um, heads the Corimila community. Oh, yeah. And he's a poet, in addition to being a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to read you, where is it, what he said to me. I told him I was interviewing you. Mm-hmm. And he said... And this, I think, goes back to what you said a moment ago about what's, what the poet can be expected to do and shouldn't be expected to do. He said, Muldoon has never been a poet that I turn to to soothe the heart, more to trouble the waters and to electrify the possibilities of form and limits. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he's a wise man. Because <laughs> obviously. If he, if he wants something to soothe the heart, I yeah. mean, he, sh- he, he needs to go somewhere else. Yeah. And... You know, perhaps to the the scriptures, mm. or mm. you know, any of the, mm. the the great texts of the great organized religions. Yeah. You know, that's what they're in the business, some of the time, mm-hmm. uh, of doing that. Though I'd say that vast tracts of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as some refer to it, are, are hardly likely to soothe the heart. Right. Well, I mean, that de- the desolation is big in those texts absolutely, as well. Absolutely. Right. Yes, absolutely. I wouldn't go right. there for comfort necessarily no. either. Um, I'd go for a cup of coca. <laughs> um, he, he was telling me that in the Irish language, um, the words for poem and poet have different etymologies. Yes. I mean, the word for filler, uh, the word for right, poet for is poet, filler, right. mm-hmm. filler. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, the word poet itself from the Greek means a maker. So it's possible that the f bit of it is related to fach, fact, factoring or mm. something, uh, mm. making, uh, you know, fabricating as a kind of Indo-European. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm probably making that up. But um, the word for a poem is dan, mm-hmm. D-A-N. And, uh, you know, there's another word in Irish, dan, which means fate. And it could be that there's a connection between those two. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, po- between so the poem connected to fate, having a fate, fateful or being. You know, one of the things I'm fascinated by, as I say, I'm not certain of this uh, etymology, mm-hmm. but um, I am nonetheless interested in the idea of that sense that we have when we read a poem that. There's something inevitable about it, Mm. that it was fated to be Mm -hmm. like this. 
It was never meant to be any other way. This is the only way it can be. It can't be translated. Uh, we, we, we can't give a pressy of it. We can't really describe it uh, in terms other than its own. It was always meant to be. It came through us, uh, through a poet, and it's like this. And um, so that sense of the, the fatedness, the inevitability, and perhaps even the eternity of the poem. Hmm. Let me just ask you. Sure. This is a large question. Sure. And I'm not asking you to I'll answer I'll give you a little but, answer. Okay. The, it's just the question is, um, how would you start to talk about, because this is, this is an answer that would have no end, what your life um, as a poet, and now that you're 64, as the song <laughs> predicted, but you never thought it would be about you, um, how, how is it, how, how, what has your life taught you about revealed to you about what it means to be human. Like, how would you start to think about that? Maybe what you're continuing to learn. What it means to be human. Yeah. That large existential question. Well, you know, of course when one's 16 and looking at the 64-year-old, one imagines that he knows something is certain of something, that his experience really adds up to something, that his experience may be brought to bear on some, not any task, particularly whatever his, his, his area of uh, focus might be, if he has one. And in my case, um, the thing I know now, and I'm sure this is true of many, is how, not even how little I know, but how I know nothing, in fact, you know? And uh, I thought I know nothing about anything. And the things that we thought indeed were verities. Um, I think I'm right in saying that, uh, you know, ranging from Pluto being a planet <laughs> through... Um, e equaling mc squared about which there seems to be some question never mind the notion of the universe which was a phrase we used when we were from time to time hmm. in fact I think there was a Catholic newspaper called the universe at that stage I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying we had no idea that it should really be called the universes the millions or is it billions of universes so I think to try to take that in is almost impossible. Yet, I suppose, we must try on this tiny planet, which I have sailed around, circumnavigated, uh, to be um, set down here, however, to try to, um, one would hope, do our best while we're here. And I think really our impulse is to do our best, however often we might lose sight of it, and try to um, be kind-ish to one another while we're still here.
the day our son is due, is the very day the red knots are meant to touch down on their long haul from Chile to the Arctic Circle, where they'll nest on the tundra within a few feet of where they were hatched. Forty or 50,000 of them are meant to drop in along Delaware Bay. They time their arrival on these shores to coincide with the horseshoe crabs laying their eggs in the sand. Smallish birds to begin with, the red knots have now lost half their weight. Eating the eggs of the horseshoe crabs is what gives them the strength to go on. Forty or fifty thousand of them getting up all at once, as if for a rock concert encore. Paul Muldoon reading his poem, Red Knots. You can hear or watch him reading this and other poems at onbeing.org. Paul Muldoon holds the Howard G.B. Clark Chair in the Humanities at Princeton University. He's been poetry editor of The New Yorker since 2007. And he's the author of 12 major collections of poetry, including Horse Latitudes, Hay, and his latest book, 1,000 Things Worth Knowing. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Terrell, Annie Parsons, Tony Berleffi, Marie Sambalay, and Tracy Ayers. Special thanks this week to Mark Conway and the College of St. Benedict's Literary Arts Institute, and to Farrar Strauss and Giroux for permission to use Paul Muldoon's poetry. Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of Public Theology Reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.